Hello and welcome to Genetically Speaking. In our first season, we delved into the careers of our members within the American Society of Human Genetics. We had great conversations with genetic counselors, researchers, educators, clinicians, and more. We were able to explore their unique journeys and the impact they've made in the world of human genetics and genomics. If this is the first time you're tuning in, welcome and we're glad to have you here. For our repeat listeners, welcome back. I hope you hear something new that stays with you. Thanks for joining us in revisiting Season 1 of Genetically Speaking. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Chris Gunter, and I'm here with another ASHG interview with Dr. Clement Chow. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little about uh, where you work and what you do? Uh, thanks, Chris. Um, my name is Clement. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Human Genetics at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Tell us a little about what your lab works on. My lab works on um, building models of rare disease in Drosophila and trying to find um, targetable genes for therapy and also small molecules that could be used for therapy. That sounds pretty cool. So how did you get into science? What led you to think about science in the first place? Uh, as a kid, I was just really interested in in, um, in animals outside and just kind of trying to find the different animals that are in your yard and the bugs and all that and spent a lot of time doing that. And Any that, good ones? Any good bugs? A lot of frogs. <laughs> a lot of frogs with my, with my, with my brother. Um, and that just naturally kind of transitioned into, into studying biology and, and genetics. Great. And so you did that for undergrad and then went to grad school in yeah. genetics? or Yeah. So so in undergrad, I was a neurobiology and behavior on um, a concentration biology major. Um, I thought I was really interested in animal behavior, but... A couple different experiences as an undergrad really got me thinking about human genetics, and um, and and kind of wanting to explore what goes wrong mm-hmm. with disease. Mm-hmm. And um, I probably want to know which what what experience. Yeah. So so I, yeah. I spent a summer at um in a in a perinatology clinic oh, working wow. with genetic counselors and um perinatologists, and that that was actually a really really interesting experience. I really got to see kind of firsthand what happens when genetics um, mm-hmm. doesn't quite work the way we want it to. And um, got, I got to see firsthand drug defects, a lot of syndromes, kind of classic ones you learn about in class. And that's what really got me interested in human genetics. I also had a really cool class in undergrad at Cornell, which just, I think, was titled Mother Based Human Genetics. And that's the first time I learned about, you know, Honestly, recessive dominant excellent mutations that lead to kind of real human diseases. I think those two experiences were, were quite transforming. Yeah, that's cool. And a theme that has come up on a number of our interviews here has been mentoring as well. So, did you have mentors who were really important in that decision? Yeah, I had a, um, a couple mentors in in undergrad that kind of really helped me get to the grad school process, get me through applying to grad school, but also started helping me thinking about. Um, what are the, what are the, how, how do I approach what I'm interested in kind of in a practical research, research way? And I think all those people were incredibly helpful and kind of shaping what I'm doing today. Yeah. So important. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the ways that we got to know each other is through Twitter. And what I admire about you with your use of Twitter is that you are able to show that scientists have personalities and they're humans and you have all. Talk to me about a little about your philosophy for using social media. I, I think that um, everyone knows your science and everyone can look up your science just fine. Um, I, I actually feel like 
you know, social media and Twitter in particular is really for um, humanizing the scientists. And um, I think the most interesting Twitter account are the people who let their personality shine through. Some of it is science, some of it isn't. Some of it is silly, some of it is serious. But um, I think that, I think if you, if you look across science, that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, that I think the, the most interesting people are the ones that let the personality shine through. And that's really kind of what you know the account, the account for, not really the science. Right, you remember them putting up pictures of snowshoeing, for example, right? Which I already asked you about. Yeah, which looks sort of totally fun, and I want to go, but it's a separate interview that we'll have. So um, do you ever, um, what is what are the reactions from your peers or other people who are not on social media? Do you ever get into blowback, or why are you wasting your time on that, or anything like that? A little bit. I get a little bit of blowback, but I think that um, for the most part, I, I think people get it now. It's, it's a little bit yeah. more ubiquitous now than was five years ago, for example. Um, but, you know, people should just use it however they feel it's useful. I mean, they don't find it useful at all. Don't right. be on it. Yeah. And so what are the, what's the value to you then in terms of your science? For, in terms of my science, I think the value is just getting the the names of the people who do the work in my lab out kind of to to um, to um the science world and just highlighting, you know, their their contributions to, this, to the study. You know, rather than, you know, I think I'll, what a lot of people do now is um, do Twitter summaries of the papers, and I think that that's a really good way of highlighting who contributed to what in the paper. The tweetorials. Yeah, tweetorials. Yeah, that's a good thing, yeah. Yeah, I know that's really important, and I am seeing that more too now. That's really nice to be able to see that. So I, I think that's an excellent point, talking about people in your lab, which gets back to now your philosophy of majoring, now that you're on the other side. What is really important to you, and what are you trying to stress with your trainees? Uh, my, I see my job as a mentor to really get them to where they want to be. So whether it's, um, whether it's in the short term or career long term thing, you know, I have, um, ongoing discussions with the people in my lab about, you know, what are your goals? You know, what are your career goals? What do you need? What do you need from me to get there? And I, and I try really hard to kind of fill that, fill that need, fill them, find them the resources or find them the people they need to talk to. That, that, I think that's really um, one of my more important jobs as a, as a mentor. It's really, you know, they're only spending four, five, six years with me. And so they have a lifetime after me. So I really want to kind of get them on their way there. Yeah, that's that's great. Oh, it may feel like a really long for some years. You know, when we're doing our PhDs, yes. right? But uh, in a long scheme of things, so infirm. So, and then do you have any specific tips that you give trainees, either how to or how not to, things to do, things to avoid? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess kind of generally, I just, I just really suggest that they constantly think about um, what they, what they want, whether it's experimentally what they're trying to get at, or or what they want career-wise. Constantly think about, um, think about, you know, what what are the goals and what what are the next steps that I need to get there. And I think if you're constantly having that conversation with yourselves the next steps are a little easier, whether it's an experiment or or um, or a career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and don't be afraid to to try things and absolutely and and fail, quote unquote. I'm making quotation marks because you don't know, right? That can be useful later. So, did you take any avenues that you are not pursuing? Did you have any quote unquote failures as you were moving along that you learned from or because uh, of your career? Or... So, I can't say no. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I've I felt quite a bit. <laughs> no, 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 no. It seems I really like that. They, they watch. They watch over you. 
I mean, you know, one of the things I did was I failed my prelim the first time. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, and really, when, all of us. Yeah. My, think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I failed my prelim the first time and it was a little bit of overconfidence probably and, and like ill preparedness. But, um, but having gone through that, you know, you know that you can get through it the other side and, and then Absolutely. a lot of things in grad school felt a lot less. Right. Less difficult access. <laughs> Absolutely. So much better prepared. Yeah. But of course, the 2020 high envision of that, that that's not hard compared to what a lot of things you have to deal with this career afterwards. So. But everyone, I think, hits a wall at some yeah. point, right? And has to decide if they're going to go over or not. Or, yeah. And that's cool. And obviously, you're doing well now. So, obviously, the lesson is that things can happen and that you can move to become a faculty position. So, I know that. How long have you been in Toronto? Four and a half Four and a half years, so it's so fairly recent in terms of faculty yeah. job search. How did that go? And do you have any tips for people who are going to be in the same boat? Oh, okay. I mean, so my my job search was a little rough. I was on I was on the market for two years, but that's not uncommon. That's not uncommon. Yeah, correct. It's not it's not uncommon. Um, and there's a lot of rejection along the way. Yeah. Um, try to keep it in perspective. Not that it's very difficult to deal with, but but it's really enough. I mean. Having been on the other side now and having, again, 2020 hindsight, that it's really not personal. And a lot of it is just about fit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so many variables that you can't control and don't know about when Absolutely. you're flying. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was it was rough, but it it worked out in the end. And, and I think that even when you find the right fit, I think it's, it's clear to both sides. And I think you have a feeling you'll be job interviewed. That it was. Even the first one? Yeah. yeah. First one. Yeah. And did you do anything the second time around differently that you that we wish you'd done the first time, maybe? Or I think it was just experience, really. I mean, I think that it's really hard to practice, you know, interviewing without doing it. You know, it's really hard to um, practice a chop pop without doing it. Mm-hmm. You can't really practice it even with your colleagues because it's just not the same. And um, so so I think it, it was just really experience. And are chalk talks different, different places? Like how much did you ask in advance before your interview for them to tell you about what was going to happen? Probably should have asked more. <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder about that, right? How much can you really ask? Because I think people don't want to cut. I'm not using my experience as an editor too. People don't ask us for a lot of information that they really yeah. could and should ask us for, right? Um, I should probably should have asked for more um, information, but the chalk talk was really kind of the, the big black box. I think of the of the interview, and then and I think crazy questions can come out of left field that you have to learn to answer or at least address with grace. Which and, and, and um and so yeah. you know whether it's learning to dodge a question or learning to redirect the question, I think that it's, those are skills that I think only can be learned on 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 the job, so to speak. And um yeah, I, I think that that's just. They're, they're they're difficult because they're they're confusing and you don't know what they expect. Right, and that's so difficult. Yeah. My first talk I ever gave at ASHE a few years ago, just a few. Um, I got a question from one of the moderators that completely stumped me, and I had to, I couldn't hear them either because it was the slide the stage was so big, and I had to ask them to repeat it three separate times. Well, I'm totally in tears afterwards. So that's one of my failures. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you just have to just have to keep going. And go through, but it's okay to ask for more information, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. 
Um, any other tips that you can give people who are thinking about not going into faculty positions? I also want to say that you have worked with Matt Light, right, in some industry collaborations as well. How did you? How did those come about? Those just came about through um, reaching out to other people and kind of be willing to explore, you know, new avenues of, of research and, you know, being willing to form kind of non-traditional collaborations. You know, I work with rare disease and trying to find, you know, therapeutics or or potential therapies for these diseases really necessitates working across with patients, with clinicians, and even industry. And so kind of being flexible, actually, it's really the, really the real, the real, you know, the real, um, real way to success in academics is being able to just cut, grab a collaboration when it, when it shows itself, whether it's kind of the perfect thing that's, or whether it sits perfectly with your research program. Now it might be, it might do well in five years and you just, kick yourself for not having started it five years ago so that's great yeah that's awesome and so you get to work with patients we get to do some work with patients yes that must be really sounds like that would be rewarding it's 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 good i think it it helps um people in the lab remember why why we're doing what we're doing and kind of see the face of of the diseases we're studying not just models or pathways right particularly as you said you work with yourself like quite a bit so it does seem like that really yeah. good reminder yeah the patients also have incredible insight into the disease that never come out in the papers. Of course. So we've, we've been able to test things that we've heard about patients and our models. And I think those, those kinds of, those kinds of conversations are incredibly valuable. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Clement Chow. Thanks for talking to us today. And this has been the ASHG podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Genetically Speaking. Join us again next week for another episode.